Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. What's up, my friends? You guys good? I can't preach with a pure heart or any kind of integrity if we don't just talk about the elephant in the room real quick. I should have been up here this weekend wearing my George Kittle jersey and getting super fired up and preaching a 10 minute message so that we could go and watch the Niners win the Super Bowl. But we know what happened a couple weeks ago. And so I'm going to preach hellfire and damnation today. I'm an angry elf. I am not happy. Preach lament, right? I've been in the Psalms the last two weeks straight because I am angry. But anyways, we have to move on. But I just wanted to get that out of the way so that we, my heart can be pure. Can we do this as always, just so my heart is pure? Can we pray together for this moment? Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for every single person that um, is here today. Every single person that might be listening to this on YouTube or online or whatever. God, I just pray that your presence and your kindness would be here. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. It's, it's, it's by your spirit, God, that people are set free, that lives are changed, that people that are hurting and in pain are made whole. So, so Jesus, through the power of your spirit, come now and speak to us through your holy and your written word. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen. So uh, when I was 10 years old, um, I was, uh, this would have been what, the mid 80s, I was um, at my aunt's wedding. And it was the rehearsal night and we had all been in the, uh, we were just me and my brother, little kids, and we had all been in the, the sanctuary going over the rehearsal. And then eventually the rehearsal was over and my aunt and all of them went to the kitchen to start working on the food for the next day. And me and my brother stayed in the sanctuary and my brother's older than me and he's bigger than me and he's stronger than me. And so I just was his dancing monkey my whole childhood. I just did whatever he told me to do. And he was always like, hey, I'm bored. Make me laugh. Do something stupid. And I would just be like, okay. And I would do it, right? Like, and so we were in the sanctuary and my brother had my parents' old 1980s camcorder and he told me to be stupid. And so I just always liked that opportunity. And so I just started acting stupid and he caught it on film. And as I was acting embarrassingly dumb, uh, I did something interesting. I preached my first sermon ever at, at 10 years of age. Um, and to set up where we're going with the message as we're in this new series on, in Genesis and we're doing what we're calling Edenology, talking through the first three uh, chapters of the book of Genesis, I want you to watch this video because this is a perfect setup for where we're gonna be going today. Be kind to me as you watch this because I was a weird kid. Go ahead, play this. Twilight Zone From the deepest of the love I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I've got a 
sin and if you don't then I don't like you what if that was my sermon today right like thank you Chad that was very good uh, li- listen I I thought a lot about that video over the years as I've watched it because it's a it's a little bit telling uh, of kind of what I grew up in I don't know if you grew up in church in the 80s but in the 80s there was a lot of beautiful things there's always beautiful things happening in the kingdom of God God's always doing good work but there's always weird things too right and one of the things about the 80s is we were super good about preaching about everything we're against and not quite as good as balancing that and getting people motivated about what God and Jesus is for, right? And so isn't it interesting that when I'm just off the cuff preaching, that the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? It speaks. Isn't it interesting what came out of my mouth and not just what I was talking about, but the tone I was talking with. You know what I was doing as a 10-year-old there? I'm just mimicking what I've seen in church right there. I was just trying to be a good preacher and that's what I've said. We got to get down and but like, and, and, and everything I think I set up there, except for if you don't like, if you like sin, then I don't like you. Other than that, everything was pretty much true, right? Like it's sin. We got to talk about sin. You cannot talk about the story of God and leave out the issue of sin. It is vital to the church. It is vital to this world that we constantly bring up and talk about this issue of sin. Because the consequences are huge. And here's what blows my mind about why a lot of times as soon as you start mentioning sin or you start talking about sin or defining sin, everyone just gets up on edge and everyone starts to to have these wars is because it's the most unifying thing on planet Earth. Not trying to be Debbie Downer today, but you know what the most unifying thing in such a diverse room is this? People coming from different uh, ethnicities in here, different socioeconomic statuses. If we could hear all your stories, there is so much diversity of how you were brought up and raised and what you've been through and haven't been through. This room is incredibly diverse, but one of the most unifying things is is this, and this isn't my opinion, this is the word of God. Let me just quote it, Romans chapter three, we've all heard it, right? For all of what? Sin, sin, you got to get down and fight it. We're going to do that today for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is horrible news. Y'all I get why guys don't nowadays in our society want to come up and mention the word, but there's a comma there, not a period, right? And it's such good news following it in the same senses, but you can be justified freely from that sin by the grace of free gift something you most need but least deserve by grace through the redemption of Jesus Christ. So my hope for today is not that we uh, kind of sit back with kind of arms uh, pushed out, like wondering where's he going with this because he's talking about sin. No, that we lean in because this is the thing that has tried to destroy us, the thing that's tried to, to kill us. And sin, yes, it was conquered. Let me give you some good news right up top. It was fully conquered 
on the mountain we sang about in that last song, Golgotha, 2,000 years ago. Jesus, with his sinless and innocent and divine blood, procured everything that we need for life and for godliness, and not just for it in this lifetime, but for an eternal life. That is incredibly good news, but we're gonna see, even from the New Testament, post-cross, where, de- where sin and death have been conquered, it still rears its ugly head in our lives practically, does it not? I look at it this way. Sin's like if any of you are Walking Dead fans, sin's like a zombie. Technically, it's dead, but it's still got movement. It's still walking around, and you know what it's trying to do? It's trying to bring death to others. It's trying to find people, you know, and, and instinctually bring them down with them. Misery loves what? Misery loves company. So we're going to go back to the Garden of Eden, and we're going to talk about two things, the anatomy of sin What brings it about? Because it hasn't changed in thousands of years, but we're also gonna look at really good news, which is the antidote to sin. Before we do that, though, I wanna look at the new covenant, uh, us on this side of the cross. Hebrews 12 says this, right? It says, therefore, Hills Church, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, now listen to this language, let us throw off everything that hinders, and here it is, you ready? The sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race that has been marked out for us. It goes on to say this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, in other words, this is post-cross, Eternally, it has been procured and paid for. The work has been finished, but he's telling us right here, you are still in a practical struggle against sin. And he's saying in your struggle against sin, unlike Jesus, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. In other words, the war has been won, but there are still battles in our lives to be waged. I love that the, the, anything athletic I love, and he's using uh, racing imagery here. He says, let us run with perseverance the race that's been marked out for us. So throw, you gotta what? Throw off the sin that so easily entangles. I think of arguably the fastest man to ever live, Usain Bolt, right? If you've ever watched him, it's, it's otherworldly, it's unreal. He's this six foot, almost four or whatever. He's just like a chiseled Greek God, and he just runs faster than the rest of the fastest men on the planet. But think if you put him in one of his races in the Olympics, and right before he got into the blocks, you tied a bunch of chains or ropes around his arms and his legs, the things he uses to get that speed going the way it goes. It doesn't matter how talented he is. It doesn't matter how God gifted him. It doesn't matter how hard he's worked. It doesn't matter how much blood, sweat, and tears he's put into that event. If he has chains and ropes around him, guess what? He's not winning that race. His race is gonna be incredibly hindered. And this is why I so unapologetically and with excitement talk about sin and bring up the issue of sin is because you have a race, Hills Church, that God has marked out for you. And it's specific and it's beautiful. And he has everything you need to fulfill that race. He has everything that you need, but there is an enemy of your soul who Jesus very clearly told us wants to kill you. He wants to steal from you. He wants to imprison you, put chains around you. He wants to make that race as hard as it possibly can be. Because let me just let you in on a secret about the devil. Cause we're going to, we're going to see him come into play in the garden of Eden today. He is just using you today. 
That should get you righteously angry. I don't know about you. You ever been used by someone? I get mad. I get fired up. I get offended feeling used by someone. You are just a pawn in his game to try and get at the one who banished him. Do you understand that? You and I are just means to a greater end. He just wants to hurt the heart of God. And what can hurt a father or mother more than when someone messes with a kid? Like if you want to tick me off more than anything you could do in this lifetime, don't come at me, come at my kids. Get after my kids, right? There's nothing more personal. It's like, you can, you can throw jabs at me. I'm a big boy. I'll take it. But those innocent kids, you don't mess with. And this is what the enemy of our soul does. He takes innocent children and uses this thing called sin. Sin is just getting away from the holy commands and ideas and purposes of God for the sake of our own passions. This is what he does and so we're going to do this. We're going to go back to Genesis and we're going to look at two things first. And I'll try and go fast because I really want to get to the end of this in plenty of time. We're going to look at the anatomy of it first. So we're going to do some what we are calling in this series Edenology. In Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve have both been formed now. All of creation has been formed now. God looked at them and said, it's all good. Go be fruitful. Go multiply. Go do good work. Go tend the earth. Curate it. Multiply it. Uh, create, have fun. It's all yours. One thing though, there's this, this one tree he told Adam in the middle of the garden, all the other ones are yours, but you cannot touch this tree because it'll make you privy to some things that are above your pay grade. I don't want you to have to referee and steward through good and evil. I just want you to enjoy this world. There's been a war that's been going on long before I created you, Adam, and that war isn't fully done yet, but I don't want you guys involved in it because again, above your pay grade, you're not ready for that war, so stay away from this tree because this tree is gonna enlist you into a war that you don't know what to do when it hits, and so don't touch this tree. So we get to Genesis 3, and all of a sudden, for the first time, we get introduced to the adversary, the other team, the devil, Satan, let's call him what the Bible calls him. He's the author of all lies. When he speaks, he's lying, and it says that's his native language. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He masquerades oftentimes like he does in the Garden of Eden, the Bible says, as an angel of light. In other words, he'll always get you on a pathway to sin and falling short of God's best for your life. He'll always start off masquerading as it's something beautiful. This is what happens here. He hasn't changed his tactics. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? So let's read about it. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, which is interesting because Eve didn't originally get the command from God to stay away from that tree. That would have been passed on from Adam. So he's smart. Guess what he goes to? The secondhand person with information, right? So he goes to Eve and he says, Eve, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the middle or you must not eat from any tree? That's important in the garden. Notice he's already throwing lies out there. He's already distorting the truth. God didn't say, God actually said the opposite. You can eat from every tree in the garden. You just can't eat from this one because if you eat of it and touch it, you will surely die, right? So he's already trying to throw the word of God off with half truths. Eve is batting a thousand so far. She doesn't fall for it. The woman said to the serpent, no, 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 no. We may eat from the trees that are in the garden. So that, that first tactic didn't work, but that's where he always starts. But God did say, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. He said, you must not touch it or you will die. Now, listen, I'm going to use the voice tone. 
Not just what the enemy says, not just what the devil says. I'm going to use what I guarantee his voice tone was because this is a huge part of the anatomy of sin, the inception of sin. He goes, come on, Eve. Really? Drama much, Eve? You will not certainly die. And the, the entry point to sin is that voice that starts to make melodrama out of God's holy commands. That no big deal spirit. Come on, that can't be that big of a deal. Really, we're gonna die? It's a piece of fruit. It's tasty. It's good for things. Like, really, we're gonna, we're gonna die? For God knows, he says, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now, how enticing would that have been? They got to walk with God, literally, in the garden, in the cool of the day, day after day after day after day. They got to be in the physical, tangible presence of God like you and I will be someday after we breathe our last for an eternity if you've received the saving work of Jesus Christ, right? They got to do this every single day. When someone comes along saying, hey, if you take a bite of this fruit, you were actually, I know you were told not to, but actually if you take a bite of it, you're gonna become more like your hero. You're gonna become more like the best part of your day. You know, when God comes and walks in the garden and you're just amazed and everything is just full of light and full of purpose and full of beauty and full of meaning. You know that guy? You could be more like him. You wanna be more like him? He's starting to, to, to get into Eve's mind. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, we'll talk more about that specifically in a couple weeks, she took some and ate it. She also, this is interesting, gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it, ate it to which I say, great job, Adam. Because let me remind us again, Adam was the one who had gotten this command from God. Adam should have been taking leadership here. Adam married Eve, right? And we see in Genesis, it said the two became one flesh. This is his soulmate. This is his flesh mate. I don't care if he's gonna get in trouble for a few minutes. You know what Adam should have done when he saw her getting close to that tree in conversation with an adversary? He should have picked her up, put her over his shoulders and sprinted as far away from that tree as possible, right? But what's Adam do, gentlemen? Oh yeah, I guess she told me to. I'm kind of scared of her. So yeah, I'll eat some too. That's great. Great job, Adam, right? Like I'm more mad at him than I am at her, but Eve seems to get all the blame all the time. I'm with you ladies. I'm for you. No, no, no. I'm mad at Adam right here. He ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized, this makes me sad. They realized they were naked. All of a sudden, Something that God meant to be so beautiful was now perverted. Something that God meant to be so enjoyed and shared without any perversion, anything off about it. Now, all of a sudden, you know what they're feeling? The single worst emotion in the history of the world. The, the single most powerful emotion that is at the root and cause of a thousand lesser sins. And the reason we sin is this thing called shame. They were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and did what? What we humans have been trying to do with our sins for thousands of years, making coverings for ourselves. Never works, but that's what we do. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And here's what I hate most about sin. This is what it causes you to do. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. In the book of 1 John the, our apostle, our pastor, John, he tells us that sin is what causes you to lose confidence before God. 
Isn't that interesting that the only cure, the only antidote to the, to the death that comes from sin is God, and yet it's the very thing that you least want to be around? I don't know about you. I spent my whole teenage and college career playing this game. I was in such a rebellious state. I was eating so many of the wrong apples, if you will, in those phases of my life. And I, and I had grown up in church hearing about sin. You heard my first sermon. You know what kind of church I went to. And I just assumed God must be just disgusted with me. And so the one noble thing I did for all the rebellious and innoble things I was doing in that phase, the one thing I did with integrity was I said, God, everything that you're passionate about, I seem not to be passionate about. And everything I've been told my whole life I'm not supposed to do, I just keep on doing. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do to be a man of honor. I'm just going to run as far away from you as possible. I'm not going to play church. I'm going to quit going to church. I knew I was born and raised in church, but I'm not going to keep showing up to church every week when I know what I'm doing in the clubs on the two days before that. I'm not doing that anymore. So I'm just going to, I'm going to at least hold on to some form of integrity and I'm going to stay as far away from you as possible. And you know what was causing me to, first of all, please, we have been given an opportunity when you are at the height for some of you right now, this might be your story. When you are at the height and on the back end of one of your worst sinful mistakes or seasons, we have a God that says you get to approach my throne of grace freely to receive mercy and grace in your time of need. You have a high priest who sympathizes with your weaknesses. This isn't him excusing it. This is him saying your only hope for conquering of sin is to continually come back to the cross of Jesus Christ. You run to the cross of Jesus Christ. There is more grace in the bank account of heaven than there is sin in the bank account of earth. You understand that? God has power and freedom and forgiveness for you, but you can't have any of it until you call a spade a spade. And so God looks at them and says, hey, where are you? Now we already know this, but let's just remind ourselves, God doesn't ask questions that he doesn't already know the answers to, right? God's in therapy mode right here. God's the best therapist ever. Every therapist got their original work from God, okay? It's just this, therapists are greater at asking questions. Every now and then, a, a, a good therapist will interject some advice and some wisdom. That's a good thing. But, but therapists already know that's not the most important thing they do. The most important thing they do is ask great questions. Because what a therapist understands that we sometimes forget is that there's no power in figuring out the problem unless you help figure it out. Because once you say it, you're accountable, right? Right? And so God's saying, where are you? He already knows that they're hiding from him. He already knows they must have eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He already knows they're for the first time feeling shame and fear and condemnation and guilt. So he says, where are you? He's trying to, to start dealing with this. And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I felt shame or I was naked. And so I hid. And God asks another question. He already knows the answer to who told you you were naked? This is just quite simply God trying to say, listen, who brought this shame on you? Because I promise you this, it wasn't me. And can I remind you, Hills Church, that God does not use shame to cure shame. I know the world does. I know even sometimes we as parents fall into that trap with our kids. It never works, but it feels right in the moment, right? Like God does not use shame to cure shame. So he's saying, who told you you were naked? I want you to realize that all these new dysfunctional feelings like shame and fear and guilt and condemnation and accusation. I want you to realize I wasn't the one that put that on you. This is the enemy of your soul who's trying to kill, steal and destroy from you. 
So God goes on to say this, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, Adam speaks up first here. He's finally taken some leadership, but listen to what he says. Ready for this? This is what sin does to a human. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some and I ate it. Did you see what's happening here? He's doing this. This is what sin will cause you to do. And this is what perpetuates it. This is what keeps it what we call a stronghold in your life. It's victimizing. It's blame shifting. It's not taking radical ownership over your mistake. He says, first of all, he says the woman. So he's got one finger pointed over here. It's like, don't look at me, the woman. And then he says something unbelievable that you now he's pointing to God. I'm scared to death to point to the woman. Trust me. I've been married almost 20 years. I, I know better. But he's got the woman you put here. There is no freedom from sin when this is your posture. It's a defense mechanism. Zero freedom, y'all. Repentance is this. It's taking this posture And by the grace of God and the tenderness of God doing this. Full ownership. Calling a spade a holy spade. Then he goes to Eve. It's her turn. Women are just a little bit smarter, a little more savvy than men. Men, don't don't feel bad. It's just true. You know, it's just true. Women are traditionally, naturally more spiritual. She spiritualizes issues. She's smart. She learns. She speaks last and learns from Adam's mistake. Women are just smarter. And so, so here's what she does. She goes, I can't take ownership, but here's what I'll try. Devil made me do it. Right? The serpent, he deceived me and I ate. Freedom from sin is found in radical ownership. I think I put that in my notes. Freedom is found in owning your mistakes. Jesus has freed us from the fear of taking ownership. The fear of giving sin a name. We, we still fear it because you know why? We fear the judgments of people. If, if I own this, if I, if, if I take ownership for this, I'm gonna be judged for this. If I give this thing a name, people are now going to start to have judgments about me because they maybe didn't know that before me before I gave it a name and before I got honest about it. And this is where the fear of man, it kills people. The fear of man, the book of Proverbs says, is a snare that leads to death. It's a, it's a trap. I get it. I feel it. I struggle with the fear of man. I want people to think good of me. I want people to like me. But when the fear of man and the fear of God are in conflict, go for the fear of God every time. And the fear of God here is to so fear that he is who he says he is that you trust that he has procured forgiveness for you on the cross so you no longer have to be ashamed about your worst mistakes. But what you have to do is take ownership. And so here's how God teaches us to repent of sin. Here's the two things, the two antidotes to sin. And I'm gonna gonna try and go through the first one fast, but this is important, so please stick with me. The first thing God does with Adam and Eve is he divvies out consequence. He's gonna forgive them. He's going to redeem them. You will see them in heaven. I promise you that. But the first and such a loving thing God does is he doesn't remove consequence from their actions. 
This is a hard pill to swallow. The second antidote to sin that we'll get to, that's the one we sing songs about and we should. And that's the one we romanticize. I haven't heard a lot of songs about written in worship about consequences. <laughs> but do you understand it is one of the most gracious, kindest, loving things that God can do to bring you to a place of repentance. And keep in mind, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. But let's be sure we understand what the kindness of God is. The kindness of God is this. When you sin, when you fall short of God's best for you, he's a kind enough father to let you taste some of the debris from that mistake. Are you forgiven eternally? Yeah. Do you need to go to sleep afraid if God loves you or not? Absolutely not. You can rest assured. In fact, he loves you so much that like any good parent, he's not just gonna bypass what you did. He's gonna let you feel a little bit of the sting from those mistakes. And it is, trust me, if you can start to see it this way, it leads you to repentance. It starts to, instead of getting you afraid of this word repentance, it starts to be going like, I wanna get more real. I wanna get more open. I wanna start to give the, the, the stuff in my life a name that's trying to kill me and destroy me. These, these sin patterns, these propensities to these deadly and dangerous behaviors. I, I am free because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So, so, so I, wanna, I wanna give them a name and, and consequence holds you accountable to that because what it does is next time that temptation's coming around, Next time that, that, that sin pattern's rearing its ugly head and the voice of the enemy's getting real loud, you have a new firewall. Before you make the decision to mess up again, to make that mistake, to, 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 to walk in that sin, you have to go through the firewall of the consequences you've already tasted from the death in that sin. You see what I'm saying here? So God doesn't curse Adam and Eve. He curses the enemy. Cursing is punishment. Punishment is just final. It's just, you're getting paid for what you did and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. The Bible tells us for an eternity, the devil and his angels will be living in a lake of fire forever and it will be never ending. That's punishment. There's no hope for him. Hope is not an option for him. But we are creatures and we are people of radical hope. Why? Because we serve a God who doesn't punish us. We serve a God who disciplines us. And there is a vast difference, even though those things sound synonymous with each other, there is a vast difference between punishment and discipline. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, and now I pray, God, you would let us hear this passage of scripture that's tense, but it's beautiful. Let us hear it from the Father's heart, God, right now. God says to you guys right now, my son, my daughter, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For in what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate. Isn't that interesting? Consequences legitimize your inheritancy. We usually feel like they're an indictment to it. When God lets you sit in a little bit of hardship from our sins and mistakes, he's bringing self-discipline to you. He's bringing self future self-control to you fruits of the spirit. He says, this is what legitimizes you. This is what legitimizes your race that he's marked out for you. I'm gonna let you sit in some, some consequence. 
Those who are not legitimate, then you're not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected him for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Don't you appreciate that statement being thrown in there? We don't gotta play like we're awesome Christians and it's just so easy and we're going through everything fine. I saw all those hands raised out here when Pastor Jonathan and Pastor Lindsay asked if there were some people going through some pain and some difficulty and some stuff. You know how I knew? Because I was right over there and I had my hand up. It's not fun at the time, but listen to this. This is the good news. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So God in his kindness in dealing with sin will give us consequence, discipline. And the older I get, the more grateful I am for it because I recognize it now. Still not easy, but I recognize it now. I realize this is an indictment on me. This is a father coming to my aid and saying, I want you to run your race so well, Chad, that I'm gonna let you sit in some of the sting of that decision because that thing did not serve you and it did not serve others well. So it's not gonna work itself out magically in one prayer. It's gonna take some time to work itself out. But then the second thing, and this is the, this is the good, this is the fun part. This is the second kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He clothes us. This is what he does with Adam and Eve. It says this, the Lord God made garments of skin. Remember that for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Isn't that beautiful? But can we stop and think about that for a minute? We knew the fig leaves didn't work because that was them trying to cover themselves. And God's going, no, I got something much better and greater. And so think about this because it's, it's easy to read past that and go, oh, that's nice. He made garments of skin for him. They're garments of skin. You know what that means? One of those precious, cute little animals that God created and Adam got to name and steward, maybe have as a pet, lost its life that day. So Adam and Eve could have theirs restored back to him. An innocent animal's skin. How sobering. This is why we take communion, right? This is why we remember the cross. To, to come back to the sobriety and the beauty of something innocent got their skin ripped apart and bled out and eventually lost their final breath in innocence so I could have innocence restored back to me when I most needed it, but least deserved it. This is the gospel, y'all. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That is who you are right now, not because of your awesomeness, not because you still don't struggle with sin, but because not an innocent animal this time. That was just a foreshadowing in Genesis. That was just preparing us for the big story, the big moment. But the big moment was God in the flesh became the son of man and got up on a cross, crucified, 30 lash, 39 lashes minus one, crown of thorns on his head, nine inch nails uh, between his hands and his feet until he finally suffocated and could not breathe anymore. This innocent lamb of God does all of that to what? Clothe you. You don't have to be afraid to talk about sin anymore. 
You don't have to be afraid to give sins in your life a name anymore because they were eternally conquered for your good and for your help on the cross. The work is finished, but we still have a struggle against our flesh and against our blood. It is technically dead. The writer of Romans says, count yourselves what? Dead to sin, but alive in Christ. Dead to sin, but alive in Christ. But until you get honest and quit this, and you start to call a spade a spade, repentance isn't possible. And I want that for all of us because repentance brings you refreshment. Repentance brings a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. And when I start to think about sin, you gotta get down and fight it. I stand by all that. The only thing that's changed though now is my tone because I've seen the precious heart of Jesus. He takes sin so profoundly serious to the point of death on a cross, but he takes you so serious that he puts an innocent person in your place to restore back to you when you least deserve it, your innocence. That's how loved you are by God. That's how much your race that he's marked out for you matters to God. So what if today as we're taking communion, this just became a house of repentance? <laughs> just a bunch of broken people pursuing a perfect God, unhindered and unafraid by the worst parts of ourselves because we know we are dead to those parts. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are not covered because of our awesomeness right now. We are not covered because we are morally and ethically pure and perfectly clean. We are covered because the skin and the blood and the bones and the breath of Jesus Christ took all of that in his innocence and imputed it upon you. You understand that? Placed it upon you and it's by faith that we receive that. So what if today before you walked out of here during communion, we started to give a name to some of the most difficult and destructive things that are still trying to rear their ugly head in our life. We gave a name to it and we pleaded, we ran to the throne of grace to receive mercy. This is what repentance is. We call a spade a spade and then we go to the author of innocence and say, would you do it again, God? Would you do it again, God? So as Pastor Jonathan comes out here uh, to lead us through communion, I'm just gonna pray for us. And I just wanna challenge you not to be in too big of a hurry. What time is it? No, we're doing all right. Not to be in too big of a hurry to miss this moment. Especially those of you that raise your hand and said, life's just handed it to me. Well, what if you just like, I don't wanna walk out of here until I feel some refreshment. Repentance leads to refreshment. I promise you. Call some hurts out, not just the sins you've committed. What about sins that people have hurt you with? Bring those to the foot of the cross. Let God heal you. I've set my peace, Holy Spirit. You're so sweet and so kind in this place. And I just pray right now that you would just do something special. Jesus says, we obey you and we honor you and we remember you. Holy Spirit, come and heal people's hearts and heal mine. As we repent, God, together as a church family, would you bring so much healing and wholeness and help and refreshment? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.